All right. Uh, so you may remember you have a take home on Thursday. Yes. So um, I think the due date of that take home is the same. Uh, the paper's going to be. I'll put. I'll put the paper okay. off. Yeah, it was my own yeah, it's everyone's only concern. Um, yeah, so I'll put the paper off. Um, so the take home Thursday. Um, I was just slightly. Um, mysterious or maybe coy about how much time you would have on the take-home. But basically the idea is um, there's going to be stuff for you to watch. And it may be you. Um, it's up to you and there's no particular um, reason that you should feel um, pressure to do this. So it's up to you. There are a couple of things where you may want to watch the whole movie um, that stuff that you're going to watch and write about comes from, um, but you don't need to. That is, um, the stuff that you can watch and write about, you can take um, by itself, and you don't need to see how it's contextualized in the whole movie. Um, if you do go to see how it's contextualized in the whole movie, um, you will probably say some, something somewhat different from what you would say if you don't. I mean, inevitably, that's what life is, because to be is to be perceived, and the movie will then exist in your mind, and therefore its existence will be different. Um, so if you want to watch a whole movie um, that you will get a clip for, um, you can do that, and that'll give you, that'll be another couple of hours. So partly it's a question of how much time you have, um, and partly it's a question of how interesting or how interested you get in what you're saying. But so the idea is that the total amount of writing that you should do shouldn't be more than two hours of writing. Um, this is, if you have accommodation of any sort, then you can use the accommodation that you have. But in general, um, you should do this in about two hours of writing. Um, and that would include um, thinking. Um, so don't read the questions and then take a shower and then go on a run and then um, read a bunch of books and think, but I'm not writing. Um, read the questions and watch the clips, and at that point, your, your clock is starting. Um, if, however, you decide that you do want to watch a whole movie, give yourself, you can take whatever time it takes um, to watch that whole movie. I'll, put the, I'll say this on the instructions for the exam also. Um, so, obviously, there's no, um, no one but God perceiving how long you take, um, but he is, um, because you exist. And therefore, um, it's an honor code um, type of thing. Um, but it's also, you should feel relieved that you don't have more than two hours, because of course you're going to be spending much more than that on your papers, right? Yeah, I knew you would. Good. Um, so, but that's basically the um, way to think about the time. So if you're planning out your time between Thursday evening and um, Tuesday before class, when um, this is due, you should probably, at the minimum, give yourself a total of two and a half hours to read the questions and watch the clips, um, and then spend two hours writing. But if you want to give yourself more time knowing yourself as you do, um, because you'll know that you will want to watch some of these movies, that's also part of planning out your time. So that's as explicit as I'll get right now. So yeah. I'm guessing No. <laughs> um, no. That's, that's part of the point. Um, so now the question is, what did I do with my wallet? This being a serious question. Ah. 
Yes. Put it in my coat pocket. Yeah. For the papers? Um, I'm thinking about it, um, probably. But, um, but usually I don't. So those of you who have taken classes from me before know that I'm against prompts. Um, but in a class like this, um, there'll be some, something that looks like at least um, parameters to write in. The problem with prompts is people always take them, even if you think you won't, and even if you know you shouldn't, people always take them as um, questions about, did you, are you picking up what I put down? And that's not what I want you to do. I want you to do your own thinking and therefore write about what you want to write about. So um, to, for those of you who um, um, need reminding of this, for one of your papers, you can. This is not, this is not a prompt, but it's a possibility. You can um, do a paper where you also um, do um, stitch together, do a kind of collage the way Markley does of movie scenes, um, and you can write about um, what you are trying to do in the stitching together of the scenes that you're trying to stitch together. So this is a question of um, going on YouTube and using iMovie or some um, equivalent to that um, and um, putting some clips together and then describing what it is that you're doing in putting those clips together. Um, this is not a requirement, but it's a creative possibility for you, and I think um, it's the kind of thing that a, you would have fun doing, and B, that it's really hard if you do it at all with, with any kind of good faith on your part. It really is really, really hard for those who are grading your papers um, not to give you a high grade. It's like memorizing in a poetry class. If you memorize, you know, what are we going to say? Yeah, you got every word, but I don't know, C. Um, it's the kind of thing where if you do it, you're practically, and if you do it in good faith, um, you're practically guaranteeing yourself um, a, a, at least a pretty good grade. So practically is the legal out for us, um, but it's a thing that you should have fun doing and will get you a good grade. Um, so that much I'm going to tell you about one of the papers. You can do it for either paper. I guess I'm imagining that people will tend to be doing it for the second paper, but you can do it for either paper. But it's not just... Um, the visuals, it's an explanation of some sort of what you were trying to do, whether you thought you were successful, whatever explanation you want to give, but an explanation of some sort. Um, for the other paper, yeah, I think parameters, but um, probably not specific prompts, but um, I'm still thinking about that. Yeah? Um, so tell me what, like, if, if you were... Christopher Markley, and you were handing in the clock, what would you hand in with it? You mean at the, s w as part of your project, or as, yeah, or, if you were doing like a video essay, like yeah, if you want to. I mean, yeah, it's your, it's your video essay. So if you want to do it, as long as some of it is discursive. Um, so the point is that some of it is discursive, that is you're writing something um, and not just um, handing in a, a video. Um, but it's, but um, the discursive part is whatever you think is most valuable to the video part. So um, anyhow, I think this is stuff you guys should try and you'll um, um, 
as I say, it's really hard not to um, give you a good grade on that if you try it in good faith. Um, but I don't know. I, I've done hard things before. Um, but I think you should try. But there's no requirement to do it. But that's for the paper. For the um, take-home, I just wanted to um, make sure you had a sense of the time parameters, both so that you knew what the time parameters were and to see if you had any questions about that. Um, all right, so um, we're going to, obviously we're going to have class today and then you, you'll have discussion on Thursday, which I hope will be useful and you'll get the take home after the discussion. Um, I thought that there's, a, there's um, we're even more far behind than we could possibly be. Um, we're, like a, we're like a semester behind and it's hard to see how that happened, but it did. Um, and so there's stuff that um, I do want to talk about in Barclay and some more and in Hume, who you didn't read, but there are a couple of um, particular moments in Hume that serve as a pivot between Barclay and Kant, and I at least want to talk about them. But I thought we'd start talking about um, Buster Keaton. Um, so what did you guys think of film? Whatever you, whatever you thought of it, and um, you can compare it to Sherlock Jr. It kind of begs to be compared to Sherlock Jr., um, if you want, but you don't have to. There are various really interesting issues, I think, in film that are worth discussing. Um, as I mentioned before, we watched it. Beckett, in the film script for film, said that the idea is um, from Barclay, that what is haunting the, um, the character in film, who is sometimes called E and sometimes called O, depending on whether it's the seeing eye or the other who is seeing him, um, is haunted by the ineluctability of Barclay's dictum essay, is perchippy, to be, is to be perceived. Barclay puts it, has the is in English um, in The Principles of Human Knowledge. Um, so, uh, what did you think of it, and how is it relevant? Hmm, you're really going to ace this exam. Did you like it? Did anyone like it? <laughs> yes. It was that a that was that an enthusiastic a yes. Person. I will love anything from Becky. <laughs> okay. Um, so you're a theater person. You love anything from Becky, but this is a film. So did that make a difference? Yeah, but it was something that I already expected because it's like the type, the type of thing he usually does. Yeah, especially the later you get in Beckett, yeah. the more <laughs> silence you get. Um, Beckett's famous phrase, an unnecessary stain upon silence, is um, essentially what he thinks human beings, or at least what um, being, being a soul, being alive, is. Um, how would you plot summarize film? It has a plot. Um, stuff happens. Anyone? Yeah. A guy doesn't want to be watched and does everything in his power to prevent being watched. Okay, so a guy doesn't want to be watched. He's kind of paranoid. Um, he does everything in his power to prevent being watched. And what are those things? <laughs> okay. Where does it start? He's walking on the street. Yeah, he's walking on the street in Brooklyn, um, although that's not, it, that happens to be where he's doing it. Um, it's the one time Becca was in the U.S. was um, 
to look at um, and to work on film being filmed. Generally, he wrote his plays and let other people um, direct them at least the first times they were directed. He did direct some of his own work, but the one time he came to the U.S. was because his director friend, Alan Schneider, um, decided to make film, and Beckett got to meet Buster Keaton, and Buster Keaton um, came to Brooklyn from Florida, where he was living, um, to do it. And um, so those, those shots are, so film is shot in New York City. Um, so he's outside at first, and what happens outside? What's he doing? Sheer plot summary. Yeah, Isabel. Um, no, he doesn't kill her, but he's shocked by seeing her and being seen by her. Um, and um, that leads to a, a violent um, syncope in the movie. That is, suddenly he's not where he was. Um, and um, there's a confrontation, which leads to a kind of discontinuity. Um, but we don't see his face. Here's Buster Keaton, one of the most famous faces in the history of film. Um, certainly in 1965, that is, after Chaplin, he is the most famous silent movie star um, and um, just part of the history of movies. Um, but he's always hiding his face, and yet he is sometimes seen, um, not by us, but by those who he runs into on the street. So, so there he's on the street. There are people who see him. Um, he's scuttling along the walls like a rat, um, trying not to be seen, um, and doing a pretty good job of it. I mean, Buster Keaton is, is doing a rat pretty well, um, because Buster Keaton is Buster Keaton. Um, and then he's up in the stairway, and then he gets to his room. And what is in his room? What are the things there? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a that's a really old silent movie comedy routine. That is, it's like trying to push the bubble down on the wallpaper. Every time he takes something out, something else comes um, rushing in. Yeah. He also has a fish. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a yeah there's a bird there's a menagerie there yeah. Wait, say it again. Okay, so there are animals. So outside in, in, on the streets and in the stairway, there are people. Um, inside, there are animals, um, and there are, there's a mirror. What else? Yeah. His chair and his uh, folder blanket thing. Uh-huh. So there's his chair. Um, there's a window. There's a window. Yeah. Pictures. Yeah, so they're pictures in the album um, of him as a child, of him as a baby. Um, there are um, pictures on the wall. Um, there's also the envelope with the string clasp. Have you guys ever seen that in real life? Um, that kind of envelope? I think they're much rarer than they used to be. Um, but it used to be just a kind of 
um, tactile pleasure to wind and unwind um, the string around the tabs and those envelopes. Do you remember those? Um, so there, so there, are those envelopes. Why does he keep reversing from horizontal to vertical? Right, so that there's, um, there are a large number of objects in the room, and by large, I don't actually mean large, I mean more than one, um, but there are some objects in the room that have the effect of looking like eyes, and the reason they do is that they're doubled. That is, that it's the two horizontal circles um, reasonably close to each other and on the same um, horizontal line will look like eyes to him. Um, so that's what he is trying to avoid, um, are things that look like eyes. When we finally see his face, what's the surprise? It's not, you expect something more scary or disfiguring. He's not a mole. He only has an eye patch. Yeah, um, but the eye patch is something. It's he's seeing out of one eye rather than two. So. Throughout the um, film, um, there are two-eyed visions, um, so to speak, two-eyed um, things that seem to be looking at him because they have um, the configuration of a pair of eyes on a face. That's probably not true of the goldfish and probably not true of the bird. Um, it's, I doubt Beckett was thinking of this, but in Moby Dick, um, one of the things that freaks Ishmael, the narrator, out, um, and there are many things that freak him out, um, but one of the things that freak him out is trying to think about how a whale would see when whales don't have binocular vision. That is to say, um, whales, have an, whales will see 180 degrees um, to the right of their forehead with their right eye and 180 degrees to the left of their forehead with their left eye. So whales don't see the same things out of both their eyes. Um, and this is true of some <laughs> birds also. And um, Cormac McCarthy thinks it's true of horses. Um, in All the Pretty Horses, um, there's a long passage which is actually kind of um, an allusion to the same thing in Moby Dick of the absolute weirdness of trying to think of what it is that a horse sees in the world. But the monocular vision, um, the double monocular vision of a whale or a fish um, or a bird um, is possibly something that Beckett is thinking of. That is, um, there's things to notice, and Beckett thought really hard about his minimalist um, texts and his minimalist works. Um, there are things to notice about the difference between creatures that see with two eyes and creatures that see with one eye. Um, even if they have two eyes, their eyes are seeing different things. They can only see you with one eye at a time. Um, and if they are seeing you with one eye at a time, um, you can tell because you can only see one of their eyes at a time. So that's true of the fish and that's true of the bird. Um, and then it's also true of Buster Keaton himself with his eye patch. Um, so does he have two eyes or one eye? That's, I know it's a weird question, but let me ask it that way. Does he have two eyes or one eye? 
Another way to ask this question is to ask how many eyes does he have? What's the largest number of eyes that he has in Sherlock Holmes? In Sherlock Jr., excuse me. I knew that wouldn't be the best way to ask it, but yes. Why? Yeah, so when Buster Keaton falls asleep and then his ghost version arises from his sleeping version in the projection booth, um, what you have is a sleeping figure with two eyes closed and you have a wide awake figure that is his dreaming self with two eyes open. And presumably... What we're seeing when we see the ghostly figure in Sherlock Jr. of Buster Keaton, or of, of Sherlock Jr., what we're seeing is what the closed-eyed Buster Keaton is also, if not seeing, at least dreaming. Um, one question you could ask about Sherlock Jr., it's actually a really deep question about what happens when we see a film, and I think it's the same question that Beckett is asking in film in the film, film. Um, one question that you can ask um, is when we see the ghostly Buster Keaton, the one who enters into the movie screen and becomes part of the events that um, he's falling asleep watching, the hypnagogic Buster Keaton, you could say, when we see that figure, um, are we seeing what he's seeing or not? I think the only way to answer this is to consider your own dreams. What's dreaming like? He's dreaming. That much we can tell um, that what's happening is he's having a dream. The dream is based on reality, but what he's doing is he's morphing reality into his own dream. Um, as I'm sure everyone knows, but as Freud was very explicit about saying, um, when you're asleep, your dreams, um, especially if you're sound asleep and especially if you're really tired, your dreams have, or your sleeping mind, is quite talented at using any interruptions from the waking world or using elements of the waking world um, so as to assimilate and absorb them into your dream. So that um, if you're dreaming and, the and, and suddenly there's, oh, I don't know, a phone gets delivered to you in your dream, um, and the phone starts ringing, and now you're dreaming of a ringing phone, it might be that in reality your alarm clock is going off. Um, I'm also referring to the days when phones and alarm clocks were different things. But it might be that your alarm clock is going off and that your mind, not wanting to wake up but hearing the alarm clock, morphs it, turns it, transforms it, transmutes it into the sound of a phone in your dream. And so we do that all the time. It's how people fall asleep when they're trying to stay awake, is that the very the things they're trying to concentrate on when they're awake um, start becoming parts of their dreams. So he's watching a movie, and then he starts dreaming, but he's dreaming about what's really going on outside of him. Yeah? As soon as you mention that, I know this isn't inappropriate for me to bring up, but like, I think of um, like nighttime ejaculation, like that. that Yeah, that's, um, do people know that's where Lilith comes from, the mythology of Lilith? Do people know who Lilith is? 
So um, Lilith is said to have been Adam's first wife um, and has um, therefore become um, something of a feminist heroine because she got punished according to certain um, Kabbalistic or um, Midrashic legends for demanding um, equality in the sexual act. That is, she didn't think that um, Adam should be should only be having sex with her male superior. Um, this is religion. And um, so she got punished for this. And Adam said, you know, I can't believe this woman. She thinks she's as important as me. God, what have you done? And God said, yeah, you're right, women. Um, and he said, OK, you know what? I'm going to make another woman, and she's going to come from you. She'll be made out of your rib instead of being made out of the ground the way you were. So um, I'm sure you were expecting this in a film class. In Genesis. Um, that first and greatest of all movies. There are two stories about the creation of human beings. And the first story tells us that God made man out of the ground. Um, in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So we're told early on in Genesis, right at the start, that God created a man and a woman, the first man and the first woman, simultaneously, that he created the species man, which only became linked as clearly, you're talking about the male of the species, really that was only a 20th century innovation, but the species man was created in two sexes. So when humanity was created, humanity was created as having two sexes, male and female created he them says the Bible. Then, a chapter later, and a biblical chapter actually just means a page of manuscript. The chapter divisions are not original. Um, Moses didn't get chapter divisions when God gave him the Bible. Um, a chapter later, we're told that God looked at Adam and said, it's not good that he's alone. I should make a helpmate or a helpmeet for him. Um, so he makes Adam fall asleep and takes a rib out of Adam's side and forms it into a woman, and that woman is named Eve, um, and um, Eve comes out of Adam, is made out of Adam. So there are two stories of the creation of females in Genesis, and um, the, re the way these stories were reconciled in um, interpretations of what must have happened, what the secret doctrine behind this apparent contradiction is, is that Adam had a first wife named Lilith. And Lilith, um, because she was demanding the equality that was her due to Adam, because they were created simultaneously um, of different sexes, but simultaneous creation, um, because she demanded what was her due, Adam, who was a male chauvinist pig, which we know he was, um, complained. God, who was a male chauvinist pig, um, um, agreed with Adam and banished Lilith to hell, where she became the wife or muse of um, Satan or of Samael, um, and was the consort of, um, of some version of the evil spirit at which point she became um, known as, this is according to Shulchan Aruch, if any of you, how many, actually I had a little bet, which I lost really badly with Eli Hirsch last semester, about how many people would know what a mezuzah was. How many people know what Shulchan Aruch is? Okay, I lost the bet with myself. 
Um, Shulhan Aruch is um, the code of Jewish law, and it tells you the reasons for some um, kind of bizarre laws. Um, and Shulhan Aruch said that the one thing Jacob ever did wrong was he had a nighttime ejaculation. Other than that, he was a perfect man. Um, but um, Lilith becomes the muse of masturbation. And so there's a rule that the reason if you're male you shouldn't masturbate is actually you're going to impregnate Lilith and more little devils will be born and that's a really bad thing. So that whole idea, which is clearly what you're expecting in a film class, um, that whole idea um, is an idea that when you're dreaming there is a real world physical correlate to the things that you're dreaming. Um, and the interaction between the real world and the dream world is an interaction in which the real world may be dissolved into, made part of, um, be absorbed by the dream world. Um, but it's not entirely separate from the dream world. Um, and that's the claim, that's a really strong claim that Freud was making, who basically said, and this is really, he didn't say this, but basically said dreams are about sex, um, sex is a real-world thing that um, we don't find full satisfaction for in the real world. But in a dream world, there are erotic satisfactions to be had that have something to do with our real-world experience. And obviously, Sherlock Jr. is about that. That is, he has been frustrated and balked and cheated in um, an erotic relationship. And... Um, not only that, but do you know who plays her father? Did people notice who plays her father in Sherlock Jr.? Who? Her dad. Or his dad. His dad. Yeah, so um, that's, if you think about it, it's kind of weird um, that um, he is being prevented from um, being with the woman he loves by his father, who in the movie is her father. Um, and um, it also has to do with stealing a watch, which in Freudian times, and boy were those Freudian times, um, a watch on a chain is not just a watch on a chain. Um, so all of those things are things that, that Buster Keaton is certainly thinking about. Um, he may not particularly want us to be thinking about them. It's not like, oh, now we know the true meaning of Sherlock Jr., but he thinks that they will have an effect on our own unconscious minds as we're watching. At any rate, um, he is balked erotically. He goes back to the theater from being a person who looks closely at everything through a magnifying glass. He becomes a person whose eyes shut and who doesn't even see the illusory world on screen that he's watching. Nevertheless, there is a merging of the thing that's happening on screen, like the alarm clock going off, there's, an emer there's a merging of the thing happening on screen with what he's dreaming. And we are aware of what he's dreaming. What he's dreaming is that he's entering the movie that he's watching. On the other hand, just think about that movie for a second. If you were just to watch that movie, you guys know that, oh brother, where art thou? Do you know where the title comes from? Do you know the movie? Coen Brothers movie? great Coen Brothers movie with another one-eyed figure played by John Goodman as Cyclops? No? Okay, so watch it. Take another two hours. Um, it's a movie based, it's a movie that takes place during the American Depression, and it's based on the Odyssey, although you're, you, it flatters you that you're clever enough to see that. Um, and um, John Goodman plays John Goodman, 
And in this case, the John Goodman that he's playing has an eye patch, and he's just violent and disgusting and John Goodman-like. Um, he basically, he's John Goodman in a Coen Brothers movie. That's enough said. But with an eye patch in O Brother, Where Art Thou? The title, O Brother, Where Art Thou? Anyone know where it comes from? Where? I forget which one's Sullivan and which one's Gulliver. Sullivan. Sullivan's Travels. Gulliver is Jonathan Swift. Um, yeah, so say more. Uh, I think it's at the end of the movie. At the beginning, actually. Oh, one of them says that he wants to make a movie, or brother or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it's a Preston Sturgis movie called Sullivan's Travels, and it's partly about a director who's making a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then he decides, no, 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 i got to really figure out what the country is like before I make this movie. So it's a movie within a movie, um, and it's as though what the Coen brothers did was to make the movie that we don't see in Sullivan's Travels, or only one scene of which do we see in Sullivan's Travels, but they actually make that movie. Um, so in the same way, you could ask yourself, what would happen if you watch the version of the movie that Buster Keaton dreams in Sherlock Jr., um, what would that movie be like? Um, how would we know that he must be um, morphing that movie into something that it wasn't originally? Forget the fact that he enters it, and obviously that wasn't true of the original movie. Um, just imagine that you watched that movie and used the kind of software that's available to block him um, and his scenes out of the movie. How would you know that it wasn't the real movie? <clears throat> What's wrong with it? What's different about it? What is, what is he dreaming is on screen that the audience of the movie that we actually see from the projecting booth does not, can't be seeing in the movie? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, the faces of the characters in the movie are the wrong faces, and we see the transformation. We see the, their faces, the original, the real people in the movie, the quote real people in the movie, um, we see uh, dissolve into the faces of um, the people in his own life. Um, so that's one thing that the other members of the audience, the wide awake members of the audience, wouldn't see. What else? Yeah. There's a point when we saw the like, actual set. Uh, that the set was, or, or part of the house was exposed. Yeah. I mean, there was no wall. Mm -hmm. So the audience would be seeing that, that scene. I don't really understand why they threw that in. Why they, why they threw that in in the movie? Yeah. Um, well, it's something that you actually, that it's not impossible that an audience wouldn't see that. That is to say, even today we have, um, there are similar things that are done in movies. Can someone think of it where we see things that in a documentary we couldn't see? Yeah. Uh, like a whole bunch of Wes Anderson movies. Yeah. Yeah, he does it a lot. But what he's doing, um, well, I'm, th I'm actually thinking he does, he does subtle and not subtle effects. But I'm thinking of a very subtle thing, which is actually very, very common in movies. And we simply accept it as part of the convention. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's exactly right. And in fact, if you look for it, you'll see it everywhere. Um, so what, um, what you will frequently see in movies is someone will be going from one room to another. Like, imagine this is a room and this is another room. 
And um, so you'll see someone going from one room to another, and the camera will track their motion. That is, it's not that frequently the way you move someone from one room to another is someone goes to a door, opens it, and or just walks through an archway, and we cut now to the next room where we see them coming in. Um, for those of you who have seen um, His Girl Friday, there's a really interesting moment because it's a it's a probably intentional failure of continuity, where Rosalind Russell um, opens a door to walk into the press room. Rosalind Russell is Hildy Johnson, opens the door to walk into a press room where the other reporters um, who have just taunted someone um, to her suicide or attempted suicide are feeling really, really bad about themselves. Um, and so you see her pull open the door, and then we cut to the point of view of the reporters in the room that she's just about to enter, and the door is shut, and then you see her pull, op you see her pull open the door again and walk in. And you probably, most people don't notice it, because what they're getting is what's called a match on action, and a match on action is when someone is doing something, and now we see them doing it from another point of view. Cigarettes are really good for matches on action. We see them doing it from a different point of view. And we read what's happening as continuous, um, because we see a continuous action occurring. Um, and often with matches on action, if you are looking really, really carefully, you'll see that in the editing there's a kind of stutter. Um, in a match on action. That is that you see the same thing twice. You see the same about a tenth or a quarter of a second repeated. Um, and that's, that gives us time to get our bearings. Um, it doesn't give us so much time that we're aware that there's this little stutter. Um, it's the difference in sound between resonance and echo. Um, everyone can recognize an echo co because you hear um, an actual gap between the sound and its, um, its repetition. In um, talking about sound, though, resonance is um, physically a very fast echo, or echo is physically a very slow resonance, but the brain treats resonance differently from echo. So what we'll hear is resonance, and it won't sound like echo. It'll just sound like an enrichment of the sound, but that's because the echo occurs so fast. Um, whereas if we hear echo, the echo is slow enough that we're conscious of the fact that something is repeated. So the timing of not quite continuous phenomena can either be noticeable, and then we get echoes or stutters or um, what looks like splicing in film, um, or it might not be noticeable, and that then it just feels like, okay, we're perceiving something, and the perception becomes a little richer than we were expecting it to be, but it's still, um, the brain still processes it as continuous perception. So just one sec. So what happens in um, His Girl Friday is for most people, what they'll see is she's opening the door and then she comes in through a door she's just opened and looks at the reporters with some contempt and says, gentlemen of the press. Um, had the um, wait been slightly longer, it would have been really disconcerting. Um, but what happens is she starts opening the door, and she opens the door the first time. And we're worried about it because this is going to be a huge confrontation. And then Howard Hawks 
by having her do that again just extends our wait and our anxiety about a quarter of a second longer than we thought it was going to be. And that makes it all the more emotionally laden a moment. And so that sort of stutter or gap in a match on action um, that can have that can have a really really strong effect. What were you going to say? I was just wondering in terms of like grabbing sound cues, especially in things. Unfortunately, I haven't seen this yet. Or really Actually, you're so fortunate because then you'll get to see it for the first time, exactly, which is a I great guess. event in your life. Okay, good. I think that's right, and it's um, it, this is also something Godard really likes doing. Um, that is that what he will sometimes do is um, make you think, oh my god, they screwed up the volume here, um, this is ear splitting, um, but that will be the point. Um, but to go back to what is a standard part of movie convention in moving from room to room, you can do it through a match on action, but you can also do it through a pan. And when it's done with a pan, what happens is someone will walk through a doorway and the camera, <coughs> here, someone will walk through a doorway, and the camera will be panning with them, which means that the camera will go through a wall. That is, they're in a room, there's only one doorway in the room, but as they're walking from room to room, the camera goes with them, and what you'll see um, is that as it does it is if you're looking not at them but at what's right in front of the camera you'll just see the wall a cross section of the wall and it'll be done as neutrally as possible because the editors and directors don't want you to be um, noticing the cross section of the wall um, they want you to be focused on the person who's walking from room to room but if you are aware of the camera um, which you're really not supposed to be, but if you are aware of it, you'll be aware that you're walking through a wall, that the camera is moving through what's supposed to be a wall. Um, so sometimes directors will really make that um, intentionally prominent. Um, the most famous version of this is The Passenger um, and what the camera does in the famous last scene of that movie. Um, but generally, um, a director or an editor might decide that they want the pan to continue, they want continuous motion. Um, and so they'll make, they will allow for an impossible movement from one place to another. 
from one room to another. Um, Sherlock Jr. does that and does it maybe a little bit more prominently, and it's in um, the way it goes from place to place, but it's a similar sort of thing. But what else would be weird about, wa about um, watching the movie that he dreams? Yeah. There's some ridiculous scene changes. Yeah. Yeah, we get a series of, um, of really nicely done. It's Buster Keaton showing just the incredible effects that he can get with 1924 technology. I mean, what he's saying to himself is, man, this is practically the prehistory of movies. Um, people are still going to be amazed in 80 years by what I'm able to do now. Um, but if you're just asking, what's he doing? Why are there lions around? Why is there a shot of the Sahara, and then a shot of a jungle, and then a shot of an ocean, and then a shot of snow in the mountains, and then a shot of the Sahara again, and then a shot of, of um, some mud? There's a series of shots with Buster, and a shot of a pillar that someone is sitting on. Um, there are a series of shots that make no sense whatever as a series of shots in any movie ever made. I mean, maybe some kind of documentary. Um, but other than that, the shots themselves with Buster Keaton or with Sherlock out of the scene, the shots themselves, the um, series of shots one after another after another, make no sense whatever. Um, they only make sense to us as an exposition of the way we can think that he is it would now be done with a blue screen, but an exposition of the way he's the thing that's continuous from shot to shot to shot, um, and that the world is changing around him because he is suffering something that movies can do, which is go from one place to another instantaneously through a cut. And he is suffering those cuts because he's present as the movies cut from one scene to another. But those cuts on their own make no sense at all. Um, and again, I think that Keaton as director um, wasn't wanting us to think that. That is, we weren't supposed to say, oh yes, we can tell this is a dream because no coherent movie would ever do that. Um, I think by then we're so focused on what Buster Keaton is doing, on what the character is doing, um, that the incoherence of the movie that he's in um, just doesn't come up for us as an idea. Um, and a whole lot of what movie making is, is preventing certain things from coming up for you as ideas while you're watching them. Um, because you're focused on something else, because you're interested in something else. Nevertheless, he's dreaming. Um, and what is it, um, again, consult your own dreams, um, what is it that he can't be dreaming, or almost certainly isn't dreaming, um, that we're seeing? That was a question that started us off. Well, okay, so here's, here's another way of asking the question which essentially answers it. Um, when you dream, how often do you see yourself from outside yourself? I think it happens very occasionally. I mean, slightly more than in real life. Um, but slightly more than in real life uh, means not very much at all. Um, so the point is that we're, we're still seeing him. When we see Buster Keaton arise from his sleeping form, when we see him entering into the frame, when we see him um, diving into snow, when he thinks he's diving into water, or whatever else it is that he's doing, 
um, we're seeing something he's not seeing. We're understanding what he's experiencing, but we're seeing something that he's not seeing. The thing about movies and about plays, but it probably matters more in movies than in plays, um, because of the extent to which we have subjective camera, um, this is something we talked about at the beginning of Rear Window, which is we think we're seeing things from um, Jimmy Stewart's point of view, but we're not, um, because we then pan all the way around the courtyard, and then we see that he's asleep. And therefore, what we've seen includes him, includes his sleeping form, and what looked like subjective camera wasn't subjective camera, it was objective camera. The same is true even when Buster Keaton is sleeping, is that the camera is still objective. He's perceived, but we're not perceiving what he's perceiving. We can know what he's perceiving, because we're perceiving some of the same things, objects, material things, from a different point of view. We're seeing the snow, or the ocean, or the jungle, or the um, big deadly cats that he's dealing with, um, but not seeing them from his point of view, seeing them from the point of view of the projection booth, um, rather than from the point of view of the person projected onto the screen. So the same is true. I think this is one reason that Beckett wanted Keaton. Um, the same is true in film which is that I think what's one of the things that's fascinating, fascinating about film, one of the things that Beckett is thinking through and thinking about in film, is that all those things that Keaton is worried are looking at him. The back of the chair with its two little round holes, the envelope um, with, its, with its two um, circular tabs, um, the figures in the pictures, the mirror on the wall, all those things are things that we would never imagine were looking at us. Because when you see, this is a huge difference that came out um, maybe in a hugely understated way in Bazin, um, the presence of the actor on stage, the one thing that you can't get rid of, um, Bazin is quoting, um, the one thing that you can't get rid of on stage is the presence of the actor. The presence of the actor on stage is the presence of someone who, if he or she looks at you in the audience, you're looked at. Actors will often look at particular people in the audience as someone to focus on, um, to draw out, and to keep the attention of, to hold the attention of. Um, because that will help the actor. But it also means that if an actor looks at you on stage, you know that you're being seen. If an actor looks at you on stage, you will make every effort not to fall asleep. You know, just Patrick Stewart is playing Macbeth and looking at you. And what you're not going to do is think, oh, make it so and fall asleep. Um, you're looked at. Um, no one on film is ever looking at you. They're on film. And we don't treat film as a medium in which we are ever looked at by the people that we ourselves are looking at. 
um, when Kevin Spacey addresses the camera in House of Cards, and addressing the camera is a really, obviously a really rare thing to do in film. It's much more common in theater. Just think of Shakespearean, well, not addressing the camera, but addressing the audience. Um, think of Shakespearean soliloquies. Um, they are much, what happens in soliloquies is actors address the audience. Um, in Shakespearean movies, they tend not to. Um, one exception that proves the rule is Laurence Olivier in Richard III, who really does address the audience just the way Kevin Spacey does in House of Cards. Um, but nevertheless, even when Kevin Spacey does it, we're not thinking, oh my God, Kevin Spacey's looking right at me. I'd better pay attention because he's so evil. Um, I have to be careful. We don't have that. Um, it doesn't have that effect. Um, so we don't feel seen by characters on film. For good and for bad, we don't feel seen by characters on film. Now, the way I think that plays out in the film film is that um, all the anxiety that Buster Keaton has, which is, I'm being seen by this envelope, I'm being seen by this chair, that's not anxiety that we have. But if you think about it, there's a question, why don't we have it? In other words, if his anxiety makes any sense at all, and I think it does, because we often do feel seen, at least Hitchcock in Psycho suggests we do, by car headlights, for example. That is, there, we, we're, our brains are tuned to see faces everywhere, and um, the way cars look like faces, um, that's a really common experience that people have. Um, is, is anthropomorphizing cars, um, anthropomorphizing other things that look like they have eyes. So there are inanimate objects that do look like they're looking at us. Um, and cars, I, I, I bring up cars because Hitchcock does that at the end of Psycho. There's a car pulled out of a swamp, which is graphically matched to um, the face of a skull. Um, as though it's looking right at us. Um, and it's a really scary moment in Psycho. Like every moment in Psycho, it's a really scary moment. Um, but we do feel seen, as Buster Keaton feels seen, by inanimate objects. Um, as long as they look facial, as long as they look like they have eyes, we feel seen by them. And yet, we don't seem to feel seen by inanimate objects on screen on the whole so that it's really hard to sympathize with Buster Keaton feeling freaked out by those eye-like things in film. It's even hard to sympathize with his being freaked out by being seen by birds or fishes in film. Um, so that his experience of being seen is actually not at all an experience that we're sharing. Um, so what that should do at least is raise a question about the relation of his experience to our own. And the question that, the answer that it might give you is something like, well, um, he's kind of freaking out about being seen by inanimate objects, but I'm seeing the same thing and it doesn't freak me out even slightly. I have no idea why it's freaking him out. He's just weird. Um, but it might also give you a different sense, which is, Actually, I'm aware of the fact that I'm not having the same response that he's having, 
I'm watching his response, and that's not my response. Why should he feel so strongly that he's being seen, um, since I wouldn't respond that way? And then we might take the next step and say, I'm watching him this whole time. That is, he is a figure who feels and is freaked out and paranoid about the idea that he's being watched, and he is being watched. We're there watching him. And we don't feel watched ourselves by the movie. We certainly don't feel watched by him. Um, we don't feel watched by the fish or by the, or, or, and certainly don't feel watched by the chair or the envelope. Um, but the fact that he's being watched is, and being watched through a film, that is through some kind of um, separation, some transparent separation that prevents us from being present there with him. It's almost as though the title film doesn't refer to the medium, which is what, of course, you're supposed to think it refers to, but it's almost as though the title film refers to our separation from him. That is, that film is what prevents him, he's surrounded by a film that prevents him from seeing who <coughs> is really seeing him. And then, of course, the um, reference to Sherlock Jr. Um, becomes obvious at the very end of the movie when his double comes up. And that's when we see his face and also when we see his double's face. And why does that double freak him out so much? Yeah? Because he's seen himself. Yeah, or it's, is it because he's seeing himself or is it because he's seen by himself? It's not quite the same, those alternatives are not quite the same thing. That is, a way of asking it might be to ask which one is the real Buster Keaton. Um, the one seen or the one seeing? All right, let's ask in the, the easier version of Sherlock Jr., which one is the real Buster Keaton? The one asleep in the projection booth or the one having the experience in the movie that he's entered? The one asleep? Um, for, some, for some meanings of the word real, um, which is the one, what I mean by that, since to be is to be perceived, is which is the one who's our character who we care about? Um, the one asleep or the one in the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the real Buster Keaton, for some values of real, is the one who's asleep. But for um, what we take to be um, the focus of our attention in, um, and our sympathy or our empathy or our care in a movie, because you have to sympathize or empathize or care about a character, the one we take as the focus of our attention is the figure in the movie who's having all those difficult experiences. Um, what about in film? Which one is the one, to the extent that we sympathize um, with anyone in that movie, and we might sympathize with the woman who's knocked down, but in film, um, which one is the one we sympathize or empathize or care about? The one in the chair or the one looking at him? Isabel. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. I think that his shock is the emotional experience that um, that is conveyed to us. That he's covered the mirrors. He's covered um, everything that looks like it could be seeing him. He's avoided all possibilities of being perceived and then suddenly he sees this face his face but not him not not him either but it's not like oh yeah buster keaton that's great if one buster keaton is good two buster keatons is better um we may think that in sherlock jr but we don't think that in film what we think is there's this uncanny figure this other figure with his face staring at him with some malevolence um, or some inescapability. He's an implacable figure, a fate-like figure. And the Buster Keaton who's been um, hugging the walls and avoiding um, being seen by anyone, suddenly he's seen by that inescapable, inevitable figure, and there's nothing he can do about it. And I think um, that that being seen by him, um, that's what he can't avoid. And um, now what we're doing is seeing a Buster Keaton figure who isn't avoiding sight. That is the difference between the two of them, between the frightened, real Buster Keaton and the implacable, fate-like double who is looking at him. Um, the difference between them is the fate-like double um, has no anxiety whatever about being seen by anything or anyone. Um, that is, that it's almost as though seeing that image, and there maybe you could think of what Blanchot has to say about the image, but seeing that image can't affect it. That image is entirely in control of its own stance or status in the world of the movie. Um, our seeing it doesn't do anything to it. Our seeing it, um, and Buster Keaton seeing it, has no effect on it. It is indifferent, and it is purely um, a seeing thing, and the fact that we see it as well is not of interest to us. Now, one other thing um, I wanted to say is that we're not, I don't think I'm going to read this part of Lacan, but we might. Um, but Lacan, how many people know who Lacan is? Jacques Lacan? All right. Um, so you lack on a knowledge of Jacques Lacan. <laughs> Sorry, I can't go on that way. Um, it would be too bizarrely. Um, Lacan, well, we will read some Lacan. Lacan is um, a French theoretical psychoanalyst. He died, I think, in 1981. Do you remember? I think it was 81. Um, and was the uh, great, some people thought, utterly charlatan um, French um, expositor of Freud. And he's most famous for his idea of the mirror stage. Um, is that a phrase that means anything to anyone? Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It means something to someone. Well, I, I uh, read it, uh, the, the paper. Yeah. It's about, like, children discovering their doubles. So, yeah, yeah. 
So it's, um, he talks about a stage in um, the development, this is a psychoanalytic argument about a stage in the development um, of, of children, of childhood development, in which children become aware of their own reflections in a mirror, and they become aware that the figure in the mirror is themselves. And um, this, Lacan says, is a very traumatic moment because the image you have of yourself um, when you first realize that the figure in the mirror is who you really are, um, that utterly reshuffles, um, breaks apart, shatters, and reforms the image that you have of yourself. And so that reformed image, which is not who and what you thought you were, um, becomes an image that you nevertheless have to um, try in some way to imagine yourself as being, um, and the crucial word here really is imagine, um, to imagine yourself as being um, in your relation to the world. So for Lacan, that's, that's a big traumatic moment in early childhood, um, seeing yourself in the mirror. Um, Lacan, so I, I just want to say this because it, it illustrates both the wonders well, it illustrates both the wonders and the wonders of a certain era of French theory. Um, a lot of what Lacan says um, was stimulated by his reading of a writer named Roger Calois. And um, Calois has, um, was a writer, sociologist, a historian of biology, um, a kind of really wacky evolutionary biologist. Um, but he made an argument which is almost certainly not true um, but which turned out to be less false than you would imagine um, about the evolution of eyes. And um, the argument can't be true um, because it's circular, um, but it's still a really interesting argument. So what his argument essentially is, is that eyes developed out of camouflage. That is, that um, there are various moths, as I'm sure some of you know, especially if you've seen Silence of the Lambs. Um, there are various moths that will camouflage themselves um, or will mimic other creatures so that they will look like something that they're not. And in particular, the moths that Calois was interested in were moths that had spots on their wings that made it look as though they had eyes. Um, so they would be sitting in a tree um, with their wings um, folded in the moth-like manner that wings are folded. Um, and if you looked at them from the right angle, what you would see were two spots on the wings that looked like they were staring right at you. And so that appearance of having eyes um, would be um, very useful to them because um, predators would say, oh, that's not a moth. That's actually something that might want to eat me. I'd better get away from here. Um, so it was very useful to them for, from an evolutionary point of view. Um, but it also meant that, according to Calois, well, this is, this is the least outrageous and therefore, in a sense, least interesting but probably truest version of um, the theory. What it meant was that Eyes evolved as they did 
Um, eyes have the appearance that they do for the same reason that spots on the wings of moths and on various leaves of various trees that are engaged in biomimicry um, have the appearance that they do not in order to see well, but in order to look like they were seeing. That is that a large determinant of the evolution of the structure of eyes was that they looked like they were seeing you. And that fact would make it make you less likely to try to treat the creature that looked like it was looking right at you as prey. It would worry you, and that would confer um, a reproductive advantage on the, on the creature. So the argument is that eyes didn't develop, um, as I say, this is the least um, radical way of putting the argument, that eyes didn't evolve as they did solely because they were really good adaptations for seeing the world and for getting around the world and for being able to see clearly, but that a large factor in their adaptation was that they should be seen by um, others, by prey and by predators, and so that you could be seen seeing them. So for Lacan, this is really important, that what happens in visual transactions when you look at someone um, you also look at the fact, if they look back at you, you look at the fact that they're looking back at you. Part of what it means to see someone is to be seen by them. Part of what it means to be looking at someone looking back is that you're looking at the fact that they're looking at you. Um, that's why eye contact is um, so large a psychological feature of everyday life. Um, why avoiding or making eye contact is so important because you're not just looking at someone as a surface, you're looking at them as someone perceiving you. And that, I think, is what Beckett is thinking about also in film, that what um, Buster Keaton is doing is he's seeing himself being seen by things that look like eyes, and the fact that they look like eyes tells you something about why eyes look like eyes because eyes look like eyes so that we will feel our own existence. That would be Beckett's version of Barclay, that if to be is to be perceived, then to be aware that we are perceived is to be confronted with the fact that we exist, is to be confronted with our own being. Um, and that for Beckett is the thing that we're, that we, or at least he, is always trying to get rid of. Um, what his characters always want to do is um, to stop being, but they also want to know that they've succeeded in stopping being. And you can't, because if you know that you've succeeded in stopping being, you will perceive of yourself that you have succeeded, which means you will perceive yourself, which means you will be perceived by yourself, which means you will still be. Um, so for Beckett, there's no way ever to succeed in being a non-being. But what his characters are always doing is attempting to think of ways of succeeding in being non-being.
beings. And needless to say, for Beckett, suicide is the least likely and least um, um, possible route towards succeeding in non-being. Um, so his characters are looking to erode their sense of being perceived. They're trying to get rid of it as much as possible, covering the mirrors, avoiding the sight of people, sticking to the walls, um, reducing and, um, and uh, miniaturizing as much as possible all experience of being perceived, but always running up asymptotically against the impossibility of not being perceived. And so that asymptotic impossibility is, in a sense, self-perception. Um, his awareness of himself, and it's not the Cartesian sense that I think, therefore, I am, which you're going to read about for next week. It's not I think, therefore, I am, but rather it's um, because I'm aware of myself, it's not the me that's aware of myself that exists. It's the myself that that me is aware of that exists and that I can't escape from. And so it's a sense, a feeling of inescapability that comes out of the Barclian, for Beckett, the Barclian reversal of cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Um, for Descartes, it's the I who am aware of myself am the one that I really am. But for Barclay, or for Beckett's Barclay, it's the I am aware of the myself that therefore really is. And that's a kind of grimmer sense of yourself that you might have. That is, um, again, think of this psychologically, because Beckett is really, um, in a sense, that's, that's partly what this course is about, the idea that, that the practical facts of film and of storytelling and of our experience of stories and the really deep and wrenching and powerful psychological experiences we have um, shed light on each other. And for Beckett, what he's describing is um, there are two ways in general um, you could say that we will think of ourselves. Um, one is the everyday world schlump who is perceived as the everyday world schlump by um, all those who know us, and we have our characteristics, and um, we're the type of person that we are, and people know that we do certain things, and that's the empirical self, you could say, um, where we're just one schmuck among all the schmucks in the world. Um, everybody's a schmuck in one way or another, and alas, that means that I too am a schmuck, um, and that's the everyday sort of thing where we may try to mend our behavior or, or think about different ways of being. And then there's the huge, amazing freedom that Descartes and Kant and others offer you, which is to say the real I, and Emerson also, maybe more than anyone else offers you, which is to say the real I is this transcendental, not transcendent, but transcendental perceiver of all these empirical characteristics and foibles and so on, but the real I has a kind of freedom 
that transcends or is at least in a transcendental relationship to everything that everyone else thinks about me or sees in me or all um, all the things that I do wrong or all the um, dysfunctional habits that I have and characteristics that I have and so on. All of that is me and the world. But then there's the I, the pure, absolute, distilled perceiver of this that transcends that, that is beyond that. And for Descartes and for Kant, that's the noumenal self, the I as a figure of freedom, freedom from all the things that are facts and that I can perceive about in myself. I can see that I'm this kind of person. I can see that I'm the kind of person um, who um, just won't say no um, to a Snickers bar if someone offers it to him. Um, and I wish I weren't like that, but I am like that, and it's really too bad. I can see um, that I'm not a good dancer. All those things are things about myself that I can see, but the eye that can see them, and the eye that can see them with clarity, the eye that can know, transcends that and is a figure of freedom. And that's the, let's call it the Descartes, Kant, Emerson view of things. But the Barclay-Beckett view of things is actually you're the thing that I perceives. You're not the I doing the perceiving. You're the thing that you perceive in yourself, and you can't escape from yourself. And if you're Buster Keaton, you're a schmuck, because he always played schmucks. And if you're Buster Keaton in 1965, you're an elderly schmuck. And that's what you are, and that's what you're perceived as, and you can't get away from it no matter how hard you try. So that's what makes it a tragic. Okay, we didn't get to Kant and Barclay, but we will, we will. We're only a semester behind. Um, so Thursday, um, discussion. Bring your questions to Matthew, to each other. Worry, but not too much. Worry a little bit. Don't worry too little, but don't worry too much about the exam. And Thursday after class, we'll get the exam. So, using the board to explain the classes.